Hey there, and welcome to Slate's Trump Care Tracker, the show where we talk about the Republican effort to pass some sort of health care reform bill. I'm Jordan Weissman, Slate's economics correspondent, and ordinarily I'm joined by Jim Newell, our uh, Capitol Hill uh, correspondent, but unfortunately Jim's off on vacation today. In his place, however, we have a fabulous, fabulous special guest, the University of Chicago's own Professor Harold Pollack. He's got a lot of titles, but I think I'm just going to say general healthcare policy guru might be the easiest way to describe uh, what you do when it comes, at least when it comes to this. Is, is that about accurate, Harold? Yeah, I'm actually speaking to you from my ashram right now at the University of Chicago. So it's uh, it's great to be with you. Harold, thank you for joining us on uh, this episode of The Tracker. You know, we ordinarily talk a lot about the politics of the health care bill on, on this show. And of course, we also get into the policy. Today is just going to be policy focused. Partly that's because Congress is off right now. Not a lot is happening. There's been a pause in the sausage making. So I just want to kind of take today to reflect on the stakes of what's going on. And and Harold has written a couple of articles recently for Slate talking about precisely that, um, who stands to lose from this Republican bill. And I want to start off talking about Medicaid. We have said a few times on the show that the big battle here with Trump care is about what's going to happen to Medicaid. Are they going to cap it and slowly cut the budget? And Harold, you wrote about how the people who are the most at stake here really are the disabled, the old and the disabled, but especially people who cannot care for themselves. Why is it that they are so uniquely affected by what happens to Medicaid? There's many things in this uh, bill that that affect people with disabilities. Uh, I mean, it's just amazing that, that we're rushing to do this without real careful uh, scrutiny and committee hearings and so on to really look at the risks to the people who are quite vulnerable. There's really two kinds of risks in this bill. One is the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. But beyond that, there are the really deep changes and cuts to Medicaid and the fundamental change to the program that comes by block granting the program. And, you know, the typical Medicaid recipient is a relatively healthy, low-income child or adult. But the typical dollar spent in Medicaid is spent on somebody who has real health problems. And sometimes those problems are recognized as official disabilities, and sometimes they show up in different ways. But inevitably, if you cut and block grant Medicaid, the aged and the disabled are going to face a lot of risks in that because they are where the money is. And so that's really what has to be looked at very carefully in, in, uh, you know, before this bill is, comes anywhere near to a vote. This is a point you raised in your article that I thought was really fascinating. Officially, 40% of Medicaid spending is on the disabled, right? That's according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. At least that was for 2014. You noted in your piece that actually that might sort of lowball it because a lot of the people who ended up getting access to Medicaid through Obamacare's expansion of it were unofficially disabled. You know, they were not on Social Security disability, but they may have actually had severe health problems. We think of this Obamacare expansion population as, quote, able-bodied adults. And you're sort of saying, no, that's not necessarily the case. In the world of simplified conversations and op-eds, yeah. disability is a zero-one category, and you're disabled if you've been labeled disabled by applying for a federal disability program of one sort or another. 
In actual human life, disability is a very multidimensional and continuous concept, and there's lots of people who face serious functional impairments who are not on these disability programs. I'll give you a couple of reasons why the Medicaid expansion is essentially the safety net under these disability programs that helps take care of a lot of the people who, who really have serious health problems or disabilities but are not on these programs. One, the most obvious group of people are just the people who've actually been deemed eligible, but they're waiting. Social Security uh, Disability Insurance actually has a two-year waiting period to get on Medicare. So there's one group of people that are on Medicaid because, hey, they're actually going to be eventually on disability, but it hasn't happened yet. That's one obvious group. There's some conditions that just don't qualify for these disability programs, the most obvious being uh, addiction. You know, there's a lot of conversation about the opioid epidemic. For the past 20 years, addiction is officially not a qualifying condition for federal disability programs. So you could have a really serious opioid addiction, and you're just not eligible for that reason for SSI or SSDI, the two major federal programs. A lot of people in the Medicaid expansion population have mental health problems. A lot of them have physical health problems that just don't rise to the level of uh, qualifying for disability, or people don't want to be on the disability programs. If you go on SSI, there's a $2,000 limit on your financial assets. Yeah. Imagine that something happens to you. You get into a really bad accident. You have $25,000 in the bank. You might well say, you know, what I really need is health insurance. I I don't want to go on a disability program. I I want to keep a job, but I now have a really serious health problem. The Medicaid expansion just fills in so many of those holes for real human beings, millions of them. And I just think that we cannot uh, lose sight of that in this debate. That's really fascinating to me. There's this Republican talking point where they say what we want to do is refocus Medicaid on the population it is supposed to serve, which is, you know, in their telling children, the elderly and people with disabilities. And the reality is that, like you're saying, is that our notion or at least the federal government's notion of disability is so, so narrow that actually leaves out a lot of people who are hurt and can't work or can't work full time and, and need the help. And so these edge cases, these unfortunate people are going to end up suffering when their part of the safety net gets taken away because they are supposedly able bodied. I also want to ask you about the more traditional, quote, disabled population. I mean, they also face risks from this bill, right? I mean, there are things that Republicans are contemplating doing to the the traditional Medicaid program that could really hurt their care, right? Absolutely. And one of the ironies in this debate is that Republicans have identified some real problems with Medicaid, and what they propose will make every one of these problems worse. The big issue is the per capita block grant of Medicaid. And there's two aspects of the problem. One is if you block grant the program, that's basically a setup that is designed to cut the program over time. And it's to cut the program in a way that creates plausible deniability for the people who cut the program. Because, you know, the federal government doesn't have to take direct responsibility because the state starts cutting back on its, say, adult dental care. Yeah. Yeah. They say, why are you talking to us? That's a decision the state made. And the people in the state can say, well, why are you talking to us? The federal government only gave us so much money. And so we had to make some hard choices. You know, if if they'll give us more money, we'd be happy to cover it. There's a lot of reason to think that the growth rate in these block grants wouldn't keep up with the cost of care. Yeah. But even if it did, right now, every dollar that you spend, the federal government picks up at least half of it. 
if you're thinking about an optional disability program, whatever it is. Under a block grant, every dollar you spend as a state, you're spending that entire dollar yourself. Yeah. And that fundamentally changes the incentives. And that's exactly what it's designed to do. And so everyone in the disability community who's wondering, you know, how often will my child be able to get a new wheelchair as she grows? Yeah. Uh, how many home care visits can I get? Uh, what's the waiting list like for, uh, you know, various home and community-based services? Everybody understands that those services are going to be nickeled and dimed under a block grant system more severely than they are now. And every healthcare provider understands they're going to cut the amount that they pay me under a block grant. You know, Republicans talk a lot about how Medicaid doesn't pay enough and this restricts patient access. That's exactly what's going to be made worse by a block grant system. You mentioned home care. That's one of the areas that I'm really worried about when I think about what this bill might do. Because the way the per capita block grant works, just to review for listeners, is that the state receives a certain amount of money each year for every patient who's enrolled. And then that amount of money expands according, well, they haven't figured out exactly how fast it's going to grow each year. It might grow according to just regular inflation or the CPI, you know, medical component of inflation, but it's probably going to go grow pretty slowly each year. And because you're receiving the same amount of money for both very high-cost patients in each category and low-cost patients in each category, and a category might be children or elderly or the disabled, it does two things. One, it encourages you just to, like you said, cut optional services like home care, which is incredibly important to the disabled community. You need someone to tend to a kid with Down syndrome or a someone, you know, spina bifida or whatnot. The other thing it encourages is you just to keep the most expensive patients from enrolling, the, the highest cost patients, the, the hardest cases, finding a way to keep them out of the program. And that is something that we've seen kind of happen in welfare, in sort of post-Clintonian welfare, where states have figured out ways to kind of keep people out of the system, even though they might theoretically be qualified. I just terrified to think that might start happening to Americans with high cost disabilities. Well, I would add a couple of reasons to be especially concerned. One is that the Senate bill really, really increases the discretion that states have to get various kinds of waivers in Medicaid, waivers that could go for eight years with very little opportunity to revisit those waivers once they've been approved. Yeah. That is problematic. And who is it that is going to be evaluating those waivers? People like HHS Secretary Price, yeah. who, from a disability community perspective, is the worst possible person to be in a position to be minding this store at this critical moment. And so whatever perverse incentives might be there that you're identifying, there's very little reason to think there will be careful oversight of the screw-ups that might occur. Another aspect of this is that you know, federal oversight includes the HHS secretary who approves these waivers. It also includes the Justice Department that enforces various legal rights that people with disabilities have under the Americans with Disabilities Act, under the Supreme Court's Olmstead decision. Yeah. That person is Jeffrey Sessions. The Obama administration you know, was quite 
active in trying to make sure that people with disabilities had opportunities outside of institutions to, to live to the extent that it was feasible for them, and in a variety of ways to make sure that the Americans with Disabilities Act was really active. None of that is, is happening right now. And, and this is being produced so quickly. There are the things that, that we distrust about this process and the Trump administration and Republican Congress, uh, you know, what they will do. There's also things that will just be screwed up by this really, really complicated legislation that's being rushed through with this really complicated set of populations that are being affected. If you really did want to do a per capita block grant and you thought about issues of risk adjustment within the disability population and 80-year-olds are not the same as 100-year-olds and people with Down syndrome are not the same as people with spina bifida and all these kinds of issues, none of that is being carefully worked out right now. That There is very little granular health policy expertise that is going into the construction of this bill. Yep. And it's happening so quickly with such a small group of people and so many of the traditional Republican and Democratic policy experts are not involved in this process that the unknown uh, unknowns here are also going to be quite bad. And the people with the most complex needs are the first people who are going to see that. Harold, I also I think we should just briefly touch on the fact that this is also slightly personal for you, right? I mean, you have a disabled family member, correct? I do. I, my wife and I have been guardians of her brother, Vincent, who lives with an intellectual disability uh, that arises from something called Fragile X Syndrome. And, uh, and he's been a Medicaid recipient here in Illinois with us. Uh, he now lives in a group home since uh, early 2004. And uh, he has been hospitalized many times and has a series of medical challenges and, uh, and service challenges that arise from his disability. So this, this definitely hits close to home for us. So you have a lot of personal experience dealing with the Medicaid system as it stands today. I'm curious, you know, what you think of it. I mean, how well does it function? Would you ever think about moving your brother-in-law to private insurance? Is that something you'd contemplate? Illinois Medicaid has many serious problems, and there's nothing that gets me more irritated than having someone mansplain to me that low Medicaid reimbursement rates creates issues when you try to get care and that Medicaid has, uh, you know, many shortcomings. You know, here in Illinois, we're ranked number 47 in intellectual disability services in the country. So I'm quite familiar with that. With all of those issues acknowledged and on the table, I would never, ever take him out of Medicaid and put him in a private insurance product ever. It has rescued our family, and for all of its defects, it's actually done an amazing job of protecting us in, through some really difficult circumstances. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. And I think most people who get Medicaid and actually touch it as in, in their lives are very grateful to have it and have a much more positive view of Medicaid than, uh, than you might expect. That kind of brings us to the other topic I want to discuss today, which is this idea you're hearing a lot from the right recently that it's okay to cut Medicaid because Medicaid doesn't work. That it's actually, in some cases, perhaps worse than being uninsured. That people who go in for surgery on Medicaid have worse outcomes than people who have no insurance at all. And that the, the program is so fundamentally broken that we should just be aiming to get people off it and move them onto inexpensive private insurance products. There's been a lot of talk about that recently, thanks to some comments by Ovik Roy, who's sort of a, a go-to health policy expert on the right, a supporter of the uh, current 
Senate Republican bill. What is your response to that idea? Someone says Medicaid doesn't work. What do you say in response? Medicaid clearly has ways that it needs to be improved. And I would add that it would be awfully nice if uh, OVIC and other critics of Medicaid actually got involved in improving the program as opposed to trying to cut it and, uh, and cut people off of it. It's a very strange debate. We're talking about a Senate bill that, at least in the last formulation, would, would take health insurance from 22 million people. Now, there's no question that in a whole variety of ways, those people would be made worse off and would be hurt. They would have worse mental health outcomes. They would manage chronic diseases less effectively. They would get less cancer screening and so on. The most difficult outcome to actually predict is mortality because it's rare and it arises from all sorts of different causes. And where's the burden of proof here? Somehow there's this meme out there that one has to be able to precisely forecast how many thousands of Americans will die if you take away their insurance for me to criticize making 22 million people uninsured. There's very good reason to think that thousands of Americans will die, many thousands, every year if the predictions that the Congressional Budget Office has made about insurance come to pass. My particular favorite study says for every 840 newly insured people, you save one life a year. Maybe that's off. Maybe it overstates by a factor of two the benefit of Medicaid. If so, that would still say that uninsuring 22 million people is basically killing about as many people in America as gun homicide. Yeah. That would be bad. By the way, that study could actually understate the harm of taking insurance away. This was a study that looked at Massachusetts and found bigger mortality effects in the low-income parts of Massachusetts. I think if you went to West Virginia and you looked at the low-income parts of West Virginia, Medicaid's pretty important for those people. We are gambling with the lives of millions of the most politically vulnerable people in America. To make ourselves feel better by saying that the health insurance we're taking away is not valuable is just a way that we can sleep at night, you know, when we're trying to pass a bill that has huge tax cuts for the most affluent people and that takes away basic services from millions of other people. That's a misreading of the scientific evidence, and it just speaks very poorly of the state of uh, public debate in America that this is even an issue. I don't think anyone in the health policy community, except for OVIC and a few others, believes this uh, this argument about Medicaid. Certainly people like Atul Gawande, who seem to know something about healthcare, think it's horrible. Every doctor that I know has a story of someone who died or had some really horrible outcome that they personally witnessed because that person lacked insurance coverage. Now, that's anecdotal, but boy, <laughs> those things pile up at every single doctor you talk to can tell you a story of someone who showed up late with a cancer that's now really hard to treat, who avoided medical care that they needed, who failed to fill prescriptions because they were uninsured or underinsured. And you look at what this Senate bill would give people when they take away their Medicaid, would give people an insurance plan with a $6,000 deductible. You know, no one's going to use that whose income is near the poverty line. That is almost useless to them. To me, it just indicates our tenuous commitment to the well-being of poor people and sick people. I I hope that the public has the decency to reject that or that we can find enough moderate Republican senators who uh, can save us from this uh, thing. See, I, I even think about this a little bit differently. Yes, health insurance is partly about saving lives and making sure people have access to medical care. But it's also just about making sure people can 
get basic medical care without going bankrupt. It's about financial protection as well. We have a, an obligation to make sure people can seek care without going, that they're going to seek no matter what, probably, once they're sick enough, without ending up financially immiserated. I certainly agree with what you just said. I, I would say there's, there's parallel conversations. I think there is yeah. a really important conversation. How do we design Medicaid so that it is most powerfully making people healthier? And there's yeah. no question that we could do a much better job of helping people be healthier through Medicaid. We want to do a better job in all forms of health insurance to actually improve health. There's no question that that's an important conversation. That is a totally different conversation from, is it okay to snatch away people's health care coverage? And do we think it's valuable that I don't have to worry that I'm going to lose my house if I get cancer? and uh, that I can go to the doctor or the emergency room if I feel that I need that. Those are just totally different conversations. Imagine for a minute we changed the word Medicaid into the word Medicare, and we were having exactly the same conversation. Yeah. I don't see a big debate on the right, does Medicare actually improve people's health, even though there's actually a lot of studies that question that. I don't see anyone saying that we should be doing massive changes to cut Medicare without involving Medicare recipients in the conversation. One of the striking things that nobody talks about in this is almost everybody on Medicaid is totally against everything that the Senate bill is going to do. And I think that, that the general view is they are welfare recipients. Their opinion should not be weighed heavily in this conversation. Suppose we went to all the seniors and said, you know, your health care is now going to be uh, no longer one-size-fits-all federal thing. You're now going to be backed by the full faith and credit of the state of Illinois. I, I do not think that seniors would be real happy about that. And I think that would be politically suicidal for anyone to even suggest anything like that. We treat Medicaid recipients fundamentally differently. There's 74 million people there. And uh, their interests should be weighed much more heavily in this process. On that note, I think we're going to move to our final segment of the show, which we, of course, like to call Is This Shit Really Happening?, where each of us is going to say whether or not we think Trump Care will eventually be signed into law and what we'd be willing to bet that that will happen. So I'm still feeling pretty fatalistic about where this whole thing is headed. I think that Trump Care is probably going to be signed into law, some version of it, but I'm not totally certain. Things are still up in the air. Congress is off this week. Who knows what happens when they get back? So I'm going to bet the remnants of the sour cherry pie my wife and I baked over the July 4th weekend as sort of the symbolic half-devoured remnants of our American healthcare system, of the American welfare state. Harold, you go. I would say there's a better than even, but not much better than even chance that this thing passes. I just think that it's so existential for Republicans and they have a big piggy bank to find a couple more votes. I wouldn't wager a whole lot on it, but I would wager something on it passing. And since I'm usually wrong, that makes me feel good. I guess I'm going to wager uh, my copy of Mostly Harmless Econometrics by Josh Angrist and uh, Jorn Stefan Pischka, because I think that many people uh, in this debate actually need to read an econometrics textbook and actually learn how to cite studies appropriately. All right, Harold, thank you so much for joining us. We are going to be off Friday, but back next Monday, or more specifically, Jim Newell will be taking the reins uh, while I am off on vacation. In any event, it's been lovely chatting, Harold. Good, great chatting with you, too. 